always had a personal fascination with the great heroes of the faith, uh, especially those early martyrs of the faith, those uh, men and women who gave it all for the sake of following Jesus Christ. This morning I wanted to share a story about an individual that's uh, held a particular interest of mine. Uh, his name is Polycarp. And Polycarp, thank you Dave, Polycarp was a pastor in Smyrna, a large city in Turkey. And he was an overseer of all the churches in that area. He was the last living link of the uh, apostles, those who saw and were taught by Jesus. Polycarp himself was instructed and discipled by the apostle John. And uh, Polycarp was a bold teacher. He preached boldly against the Roman gods and uh, the Roman Empire and their uh, false gods for years under great uh, threats and persecution. And uh, finally the Romans came to arrest Polycarp. And I want to read for you the testimony of Polycarp's last day. So Polycarp was brought to an arena, and since he was such a well-known Christian leader, great crowds of people had come to see what would happen to him. The place was incredibly noisy, and when they finally saw Polycarp himself brought in, the uproar only got worse. When the proconsul saw Polycarp standing before him, he asked the prisoner to confirm that he truly was Polycarp. He probably had trouble believing that this elderly man was the bold preacher that had been so difficult to silence. Then the proconsul also began to convince Polycarp to save himself. Have respect to your age, he advised him. Why should Polycarp suffer as a feeble old man? He told Polycarp all he needed to do was show his loyalty to the emperor and condemn all the other Christians in the arena by saying away with the atheists. They called the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. Polycarp had stood list, quietly listening to this point, but when the proconsul commanded him to condemn the Christians as atheists, he decided to speak. He turned his eyes, not towards his fellow followers of Jesus, but to the crowd all around him. And then he looked up at heaven and said, Away with the atheists. This is not what the Romans wanted to hear. The proconsul still tried to get Polycarp to betray Christ. He knew that if he could get this one old man to turn against his Lord out of fear for his life, it would be a huge blow to the church. Swear to Caesar and curse Christ, and I will let you go, promised the proconsul. At this, Polycarp looked straight at the Roman official. I have served him 86 years, Polycarp told the proconsul, and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Even then, the proconsul did not give up. He threatened Polycarp with being thrown to wild beasts, and when that did not frighten him, with being burned to death. To this, Polycarp replied that the Romans could only threaten with a fire that burned for a little while and then went out, because they were not aware of the fires of coming judgment and everlasting punishment that await the ungodly. Then he bravely challenged them, but why do you delay? Come, and do what you will. Realizing he could not change Polycarp's mind, the proconsul had it proclaimed to the crowd that the prisoner had confessed his guilt by declaring himself a Christian. The crowd shouted with anger. They wanted Polycarp eaten by lions. They wanted him burned alive. They rushed to get the wood for the fire, eager to see the end of this stubborn atheist who spoke against their gods. When the Romans tried to nail Polycarp to the pole surrounded by all the wood, Polycarp told them that the Lord, who would give him the strength to endure the fire, would also help him to remain there, without nails or ropes to hold him. As he stood there, he prayed, praising God for Jesus and for his salvation. 
and thanking the Lord that he would be considered worthy to be a martyr for his Savior. Then they lit the fire, and he died while all around him the pagans cheered. This was the way in which Polycarp entered into glory and won a reward which none could take away from him. Friends, suffering for the sake of Christ has been a reality for Christians since the beginning of the church. And with the reality of suffering, the example of Jesus and the promises of Scripture have provided the encouragement that believers have needed to stand strong and boldly in the face of whatever persecutions have come their way. I have no doubt that as Polycarp stood in the arena that day, he was emboldened by the example of our Lord. I'm also sure that the testimony of Scripture fueled his resolve. Passages like Hebrews 11 and 12 where we read about the great heroes of the faith. Or maybe it was passages like our passage for today, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6, that inspired Polycarp as he went boldly into the flames. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 this morning. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Did Polycarp know and believe this passage? I'm sure he did. He likely preached on it, just as I am today. From its earliest days and for over 2,000 years now, the church has faced persecution for standing for the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from the earliest days, it has been the model of Jesus and the exhortations of the word that have empowered these believers, and especially these great heroes of the faith, people like Polycarp, who gave everything for the sake of our Lord. Now, friends, I want you to understand something this morning. Polycarp was not a superhero. He didn't possess any superhuman qualities, and neither have any of the other heroes of the faith throughout the centuries. What every hero of the faith has had, though, was a determination to make three essential commitments. These commitments are found in our passage for today, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, which we just read. I'd like to highlight these commitments for us this morning in the hope that each of us here today will also make these commitments in our own lives that we too might live boldly for Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. What are these three commitments of the hero of faith? Well, here in 1 Peter 4, Peter, Peter highlights these three commitments of the hero of the faith. Commitment number one is this. Heroes commit to embracing Christ's priorities. They commit to embracing Christ's priorities. <laughs> In verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Peter encourages us here to embrace the attitude of Christ. The word attitude here can also be translated as motivation, 
intent, or resolve. In other words, Christ's priorities are to be our priorities. We are to take on the attitude of Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us that Jesus suffered physically in his body. He's referring back to 1 Peter 3.18, where last week we saw how Jesus suffered for us, for our sins, so that we might be restored into a right relationship with our Creator God. And it was Jesus' attitude, his priorities that motivated him in his suffering. What were these priorities? The Apostle Paul describes the priorities of Christ like this in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What were Christ's priorities? Humility, obedience, and submission to the will of God, regardless of the consequences. Christ's priorities can be most clearly seen the eve of his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Friends, this is the attitude that Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with. Embracing Christ's priorities means humble submission and obedience to the will of God, even if it costs us, no matter what it costs us. Some of you know I have a friend by the name of Kenneth Bay. You may have heard his story on the news. Kenneth Bay is a missionary for YWAM, Youth with a Mission. For the last year and a half, he's been imprisoned in North Korea in a labor camp. He was caught by the North Koreans a year and a half ago, carrying out his missions work in that country, and he was sentenced by the North Korean government as a spy, a threat to the state, and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a North Korean prison camp. I met my friend Kenneth five years ago when my dad, brother, and I were teaching over in northern China. He hosted us the week we were there. I remember asking Kenneth, are you ever afraid of the consequences of your work in North Korea? And I'll never forget, Kenneth said, Jason, you know what? God has called me to this ministry. And if God has called me to this ministry, even if it takes me to North Korea, that's the safest place I can be, inside the will of God. That's the attitude of a hero, friends. My friend Kenneth's testimony reminds me of another great hero of the faith, that famous martyr missionary, Jim Elliott, who gave his life in the jungles of Ecuador in the 1960s. Days before he was speared to death, Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'd like to ask you to keep my friend Kenneth in your prayers. Pray for his family back in Seattle as well. You know, friends, embracing the priorities of Christ for most of us probably won't cost us our lives. For most of us, it probably won't lead us to a North Korean prison camp. 
But if you do commit to embracing the priorities of Christ, that commitment will likely cost you something. Status, a relationship, finances, a job, your reputation. Are you willing to count that cost? Jesus said in Mark 8, 34-35, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Commitment number two here that Peter highlights for us this morning. Peter says, heroes commit to living for the will of God. Heroes commit to living for the will of God. In verses 1 through 3, Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. In these verses, Peter highlights for us the external fruit of the gospel leading to a transformed lifestyle. Peter has already described in his letter how the gospel transforms us spiritually. And we just saw how the gospel transforms our priorities. And now, Peter encourages us to embrace a transformed lifestyle. One where we live for the will of God. Now, there's a curious little statement here at the end of verse 1 that I want to explore briefly. Peter says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, what does that mean? Does suffering lead to righteousness? Is it really possible to be done with sin in this life? Friends, we need to be careful about applying too literal of an interpretation here. Not only does reading this passage too literally go against the rest of Scripture and all our experience, but it can also lead to great abuse. I remember as a kid, my family and I lived in the Philippines for two years. My parents were serving there as missionaries. I remember every year on Good Friday, even to this very day, every year on Good Friday, hundreds of Roman Catholic men in the Philippines will reenact the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They'll go out on the streets of Manila and they'll have themselves whipped and flogged, literally streaming blood down their backs. Some of them will go so far as to even have themselves crucified, being nailed, literally nailing themselves to crosses, hanging on crosses for hours, believing that through their suffering they can purge themselves of their sin. Is that what Peter had in mind here? Not at all. What is Peter saying here? Peter is simply declaring to us that the one who suffers on behalf of Christ bears testimony that they have traded masters. They're done with sin. They're no longer slaves to sin in their former sinful nature. But now, they have become slaves to righteousness. The Apostle Paul describes this in Romans 6, 21 through 22. He says, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and, produces, and the result is eternal life. Now, friends, please understand this here this morning. Following Christ doesn't mean 
that will no longer struggle with sin in this life. However, as followers of Christ, our sinful nature is no longer our master. That yoke has been removed from us from, by Jesus Christ. You're no longer a slave to your former sinful nature. As Titus 2, 11 through 12 teaches, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, friends, as Christians, as Christians, we don't fight for victory over sin. We fight from victory over sin. Jesus has conquered sin for us. And through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to say no to sin and to live for the will of God. This is why Peter says in verse 3, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Peter is saying here, friends, it's time to move on. It's time to live for something better. Leave that garbage behind. Author Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book titled Heaven, he reminds us that as followers of Christ, life is really all about preparing us for eternity. And as God's chosen and redeemed people, we should live in light of eternity and in light of our eternal destination and identity. This past April, I was speaking at a church out in Seattle, and I know you're probably getting tired of hearing my stories about my connections to the Seattle Seahawks, right? But while I was out in Seattle this last April, I had dinner one night with my buddy Carl Payne, who's the chaplain of the Seattle Seahawks. And uh, it was very interesting. We were having dinner at Chili's, and he said, we started talking about the team. And he told me, this is last April, he said, Jason, I guarantee you these guys are going to win the Super Bowl next year. And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, no, seriously. He said, Jason, in all my years as their chaplain, He's been their chaplain for over 10 years. He says, in all my years as their chaplain, I've never seen the guys more focused, more committed, more, committed, more dedicated to the cause than they are this offseason. They're training harder. They're preparing harder. Why were they so committed? Why were they so dedicated to the cause back in April? Friends, it's because they were living and preparing with their destination in mind. And we all saw just a few weeks ago how they became champions because they were living and preparing with their destination in mind. Friends, they had no guarantee of being champions and they were living with their destination in mind. You and I, we're already champions in Jesus Christ. How much more should we live with our eternal destination in mind? Let me ask you, are you living with your eternal destination in mind? A couple weeks ago, Wednesday night, I was here at church and my buddy John Slavic, many of you guys know John and Debbie Slavic, members at our church here. John was baptized this last summer. John became a Christian just about two and a half years ago. He came up to me on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. He says, Jason, guess what I did this week? I said, what'd you do, John? He said, I threw away all my old hardcore rap CDs. I said, really? A couple weeks earlier, John and myself, a bunch of guys from our ABF, we had been out bowling one evening. And while we were bowling, we were all talking about, you know, the music that we used to listen to growing up and reminiscing about, you know, some of the songs we enjoyed. And John was talking and explaining to us how ever since he became a Christian two years ago, he says, all I can listen to now is KTIS. 
He says, uh, I can't even listen to my old rap music I used to love so much. He says that it wounds my spirit when I hear the words they use, when I hear the things they sing about. I just can't even listen to it anymore. And two weeks ago, he came and told me that he had just thrown away his last rap CD. Friends, I'm not ripping on secular music here. I'm not saying all secular music is wrong, but what John was recognizing is that great truth of Romans 12 too. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And God has been working, renewing his mind. And he said, I can't listen to that old music anymore. It wounds my spirit. That's living with your destination in view. Let me encourage you, friends, live with eternity's values in view. Don't waste your life on trivial things. This life is short. I remember a few years back, my dad and brother and I, we were teaching for three weeks over in Russia. On our way home from Russia, we had a 12-hour layover in Amsterdam. 12-hour layover in Amsterdam. Basically a day to make the most of our time seeing the sights in Amsterdam. Well, you know, we had a limited time. We wanted to make the most of it, so we made our list. You know, we wanted to see the Anne Frank House. We wanted to see the Van Gogh Museum. We wanted to see the Rembrandt Museum. I mean, we were going to see the highlights because we had a limited amount of time, and we weren't going to waste our time on trivial things. You know, I mean, it would have been crazy for us to waste two, three hours sitting at McDonald's in Amsterdam. Right? Why? Because we had limited time. Our time was short. We wanted to make the most of it. In the same way, friends, let me encourage you, don't waste your life on trivial things. Make the most of your time in this life by living it for the will of God. As that famous missionary C.T. Studd once wrote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Peter tells us that a hero is one who commits to living for the will of God. Let's make that our goal too, friends. As Paul encourages us in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And lastly, commitment number three this morning. Peter tells us that a hero commits to living for the praise of heaven rather than the praise of the world. In verse 4, Peter admonishes us to be ready to face persecution in this world as we commit to embracing Christ's priorities and living for the will of God. Peter says they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. You know, friends, the unbelieving world doesn't comprehend the life that's committed to honoring God. And I'm guessing many of you here this morning have probably experienced the reality of what Peter's describing in this verse. The reality of surprise, of shock, possibly even abuse when unbelievers in your life have found out that you're a Christian and what you live for. I remember the first time I experienced this that I can recall was in high school. I grew up at Eden Eden Prairie and I played football for Eden Prairie High School and I remember one afternoon after practice, myself and a bunch of guys were in the locker room and a bunch of my buddies were talking about the party they were going to go to that weekend. They were talking about the girls they were hoping to hook up with. They started talking about all their sexual conquests and different girls that they had fooled around with and 
one of the guys finally turned to me and said, Jason, how many girls have you hooked up with? And I told him, well, guys, I haven't. I'm a virgin. And I said, I plan on saving myself for marriage one day. Well, you can imagine their initial response. At first, they were shocked. One of my buddies even said, what's your problem? Are you gay or something? I said, no. I said, I like girls. I said, but I'm a Christian, and I'm committed to live for the will of God, and so I'm saving myself for that person I'm going to marry one day. When I told them this, they began to ridicule me for my beliefs, call me a sissy, a wuss, a whole bunch of other names I can't repeat here at church. You see, friends, even the testimony of an imperfect Christian like myself, and that's all I am. I'm an imperfect Christian like all the rest of us here this morning. But even the testimony of an imperfect Christian like myself in seeking to live for the will of God was enough to convict my unsaved friends of their own sin. I wasn't judging them that day. I wasn't condemning them. It was their own sinful consciences that instinctively rebelled and reacted to the difference that they saw in my life. Friends, you need to be ready to face the surprise and abuse that will likely come when you seek to honor God in your priorities and in your lifestyle. The world's not going to understand that. But again, friends, we don't live for the praise of the world. We live for the praise of heaven. And though the world and its abuse may at times seem unfair, Peter concludes our passage today with two final encouragements for us as we consider the possibility of facing persecution in this world. In verse 5, Peter reminds us that while we may be unfairly judged by the world, those who malign us for our faith will ultimately face judgment themselves. Peter says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, it may sometimes feel like the wicked go unpunished. But one day, friends, God is going to set all things straight. And so we live by faith and we entrust ourselves to God, no matter the consequences. And lastly, in verse 6, Peter says, for this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Peter's final reminder for us today is that we have nothing to fear in Jesus Christ. Even though we may face judgment in this world, even if we should die for our faith, as Peter knew many believers already had. Peter says those who trust in Christ have nothing to fear. This world is not our home. And we will live forever in the presence of our Savior. Friends, a hero is one who commits to living for the praises of heaven rather than the praises of the world. Will you commit with, commit with me today to making that same commitment? I hope you will. I want to conclude this morning by sharing one last story with you for your encouragement. Story of another hero of the faith who gave her life 1,850 years ago. Her name is Blandina. She was a servant girl in Gaul, which is modern-day France. She was a Christian. And I want to read her testimony for you. Of all the Christians who suffered, the most shining example of steadfast faith was Blandina. 
Blandina was a slave, but the lady for whom she worked was a Christian and a member of the church, along with Blandina. When Christians began to be arrested and taken to be killed, the church worried about the poor servant girl, Blandina. Blandina was so small and weak that the church thought it would be especially hard for someone like her to endure and hold fast to her faith in the Lord Jesus. But God showed how he is able to take the weakest person and make them strong and mighty for him. The day came when Blandina and her mistress, as well as many other Christians, were arrested and led away to be tried. The soldiers took her and led her to a large stadium or arena, similar to one that Polycarp had been taken to. Then they began to beat and do many painful things to Blandina. They told her she should curse Jesus Christ. They accused her and the Christians of doing many vile and wicked things. But she would only say in response, I am a Christian, and there is no evil done among us. For a whole day, from morning to evening, these wicked Roman officials had her tortured, trying to make her deny her Lord and tell lies about how Christians behaved. But though the emperor and, her, emperor and his men might despise a lowly slave, God chose her as his special witness to show how he helps his people who trust in him. When the men started to whip and flog Blandina, they expected she would quickly give up and agree to whatever they said about her and her Christian friends. Instead, the day dragged on, and it was the soldiers who gave up. The men actually wore themselves out and quit for the day. They were astonished at what she had endured, knowing that just one of the many tortures they had put her through would normally have killed a man, yet alone a small, frail girl. Blandina and others were sent back to the prison to wait until the, another day of games, as the Romans called these cruel acts performed before pagan crowds who delighted in the deaths of Christians. One of the ways the persecutors tried to mock and dishearten Christians was through putting them on on a cross, making fun of them and their Savior. The next day that Blandina was in the arena, they did this to her and released wild beasts in the stadium to devour her. Several other Christians were there as well. But to everyone's amazement, the beasts did not attack her. And instead of intimidating the Christians through mockery, her fellow disciples looked and saw her on the cross and were strengthened. The other Christians knew that suffering was one of the ways they could follow in the footsteps of Christ, their Master. And Blandina's quiet endurance was an example to them to be like lambs led to slaughter. They also knew that these things they were suffering would end as soon as their life ended, and they would receive an eternal crown of glory for faithfulness to their beloved Savior. Several died that day seeing their sister Blandina holding fast and no doubt thinking in their hearts that if God could give a little slave girl the strength to endure, he would surely help them as well. Blandina lived on. For the Lord had determined to show his power in her, and she was put back into prison until the next games were held. Blandina helped her. Uh, during these weeks of persecution, Blandina's strong spirit ministered to the other imprisoned Christians from the first day to the last. Everyone was surprised and amazed as she held on in the prison day after day with broken bones and countless wounds and bruises. Blandina helped her Christian brothers and sisters to fight the good fight of faith by urging them to hold fast to their confession until the end. Having held on physically and spiritually through all these torments, Blandina died at last as well. The brothers who escaped persecution to tell of these events wrote a letter to the other churches which describes Blandina's last moments. They wrote, And after the scourging, after the wild beasts, after the roasting seat, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown before a bull, and having been tossed about by the animal but feeling none of these things which were happening to her, 
on account of her hope and firm hold upon what had been entrusted to her in her communion with Christ, she also was sacrificed. And the heathens themselves confessed that never among them had a woman endured so many and such terrible tortures. Like her Lord, she endured all things for the joy that was set before her, despising the shame, aware of the great cloud of witnesses who were watching her trial. And who can doubt that when God at last allowed her frail body to take its last breath, she was immediately surrounded in heaven by the glad and welcoming cries of all those who had so recently gone before her and joined them in praising the Savior, her dear Master, who she now saw face to face. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray, God, that you would give us that kind of faith. That we too would live boldly for you, no matter the cost. We thank you for the encouragements that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the model you gave us in our Lord, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that as we live, that we would live faithfully for you. That we would commit to embracing your priorities. That we would commit to living for your will in all we do. And that we would commit to living for the praise of heaven rather than the praise of men and women. Lord, we are grateful that we currently live in a place where we don't have to fear the kind of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters around the world today are currently experiencing. But Lord, for many of us, we have choices to make every day in living for you. In the words we say, the things we stand for, the choices we make, and sometimes there are consequences for those choices as well. Give us courage, Lord. Embolden us to live for you, no matter what it costs. Let the example of your suffering, the encouragements of Scripture, and the testimony of these great heroes of the faith inspire us as we go forward to live faithfully for you each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.